Get the care that's right for you and your family. There are many other options to manage and maintain your health. Find out what's available in your area. Call HealthLink at 811 to find out more about your health care options or visit albertahealthservices.ca backslash options. This is David Veach and you're listening to Passion for Health. This is your opportunity to hear from Alberta Health Services physicians and other healthcare providers, researchers, policymakers, community partners, and patients. To hear their stories and insights about what's happening to improve Albertans' confidence and satisfaction in their healthcare system. Today's guest is Dr. Verna Yu. On January 11th, she starts her new role as Interim President and CEO of Alberta Health Services. Verna is the seventh person to hold the President and CEO position since the start of AHS in 2009. Although the interim nature of Verna's new role may, at first glance, imply more uncertainty, she is well known to AHS and Albertans. Verna was most recently Vice President of Quality and Chief Medical Officer and gained a solid reputation within AHS and among external partners and stakeholders. I started by asking her if she's approaching her new role with excitement, anxiety, or a little of both. I've kind of been in this position before, and I don't think people probably are that aware of it, but back in 2011, um, in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Alberta, I was asked to take on the interim dean role of the faculty within about less than a week's notice. And so um, at that time, it was an interesting jump or leap from you know, a fairly focused position to now having to oversee a faculty of 700 academics, you know, 2,000 support staff. So it was a very interesting experience. And you, and I just, and I think back to that time wondering, hmm, was it kind of foreshadowing to something like this? What did you learn from that experience? It was an interesting experience in that it totally, it totally opened my mind to thinking about everything. I felt like I had Personally, I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, it was uh, it was obviously a, a stressful time, but I have to say for me myself, personally, it was very rewarding because what it allowed me to really do was to really try to bring a sense of improved morale and purpose back into the faculty. Because the reason why I was actually asked to do that, the dean actually had to uh, step down because of a plagiarism charge. And at that time, you can imagine how ashamed I think the faculty felt. And so this allowed me to sort of bring people back together. So, and, and so the situation is obviously very different here, but I've always felt that, you know, the morale within AHS has, has it's, been du- it's been difficult. Let's not um, be naive about that. And I think part of it is because we don't, you know, and when I say we, I'm talking about AHS, I think in many respects, we don't get our credit. And people don't see the great stuff that's happening every single day, every single minute. And the bad news is easy to report on bad news and it just overshadows all the positive aspects. And there's only so many times when you can get kind of beaten over the head like that. Um, So what I really would want to do is really try to highlight to everyone, starting with our board, with government, uh, to the public, about who we are, uh, you know, and I've said this before, you know, um, publicly that we we are all people, and this is about a people business. This is about relationships, and at the end of the day, everyone goes into work 
to do a good job. Nobody goes in with a mindset that I'm going to do a crappy job. So let's profile that. Let's be proud of who we are, proud of what we've accomplished, and uh, know that there's things that we always need to improve on, but that we can do this and make healthcare the best in Canada. You joined AHS um, in 2012, I believe. So that was three years into AHS's being. And you're talking about perception. Did you have a perception of AHS when you came to the organization? Yeah, that's a good question because when I, when I first was telling people that I was coming over, um, there were many comments, and I still hear it today, that, oh, you're going to the dark side. <laughs> and um, of course, Who's Darth I, Vader? Well, I worked, I worked at the university hospital, which has got a reputation of being a Death Star, so it was a very, <laughs> uh, you know, very uh, interesting analogy. But so, and I actually would respond, I would actually respond to them and said, you know what? I'm actually going to the light side because what I can do and how I can influence um, healthcare system transformation, I can do it far more within Alberta Health Services with a provincial uh, landscape than I could anywhere else in Canada. And I definitely could not do that within a university academic setting. I really want to talk about that. And I want to talk about kind of your vision for AHS and, and what is kind of high on your to-do list. Before we do that, I really want people to know who you are. Can we talk a little bit about uh, your background? Sure, I'm not sure what background you're talking about. Here, I'll, I'll walk you through it. Yeah. Tell me, like, yeah. where were you born? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, tell me about your family. Yeah. What were your interests as yeah. a kid? So my family is from Hong Kong, and so I was born in Hong Kong. And it's an interesting story about how I immigrated to Canada because um, the sponsors for us to come to Canada was, in fact, uh, one of the presidents of the University of Alberta. So we've got very, very strong ties to U of A. And what had happened was is that my parents, who were at that time working in Hong Kong, was hosting a chemistry professor because my dad's cousin was a chemistry professor here. And I think they developed such a strong relationship just over two weeks and letter writing over four years. And it really encouraged my my parents to bring the family over to Canada. My father, at that time in the 60s in Hong Kong, it was a fairly corrupt system. And he was really thinking about myself and my sister and wanting us to grow in a, I think in a much more stable environment and chose Canada consequently. What year was that? And, and it, was it just you and your sister? Or is that, or do you only have one sibling? Yeah, so myself and my sister, my sister's an older sister and my grandmother came with us. So there are five of us. And I, and I just think back to that time because uh, my parents were in their 30s. They gave up pretty good careers to come over, to start over in Canada. And how old were you? Uh, well, that would give away my age, Dave, and we know I'm only 12. So Roughly. <laughs> Roughly. <laughs> so I was around five mm -hmm. at that time. And But, you know, I think back to, you know, now, I mean, we can see Canada on the Internet. But can you imagine in the 60s? Like, they had no idea. So I remember wearing a rabbit fur coat <laughs> with earmuffs, getting off the plane in the middle of January. And where, where did to you Edmonton, land? To Edmonton. To yeah. Edmonton. And all I could, I just remember getting out of the airplane because there was no connection. It was basically going outside, you know, down to the end and walking inside. And I still remember the, the whoosh of cold air in my face as I got off the plane. That's the only thing I remember, to be frank, when when we when we landed in Canada. So I'm sorry, did you say what month that was? Like it was January. It was January. It was January. Oh, um, my. 
But I, I just think of my parents as being very courageous people to be able to take that type of risk and to come to a place where they had no family, they had no friends really. Um, the, you know, the U of A actually gave both my parents jobs and my dad ended up leaving quite quickly but my mom stayed there for 25 years. And so I've got very, very strong university connections but I, I think for me, seeing the hard work of my parents, uh, understanding that they sacrificed it for us, uh, really reinforced my own values of really being loyal um, I, I would I like to think I've got integrity. Um, I'm very, very honest. I'm very respectful, especially of elders because of my cultural background. And I'm very, very, and because my grandmother raised me essentially because my, both my parents are working, you know, it, for me, I, I, was, I always had a very good sense, I think, of around uh, people and interactions and uh, sort of understanding the different, because we had a lot of people to live with us, and so you had to sort of function in a big family because we had lots of borders and people like like that. But it was it was happy times and and you know had a very good childhood. Yeah, and you came over when you were roughly five. Yeah. So what was it like for you coming to a new country? And then you were probably going smack right into grade one or at least in kindergarten. Yeah, so I know I knew no English when I came, and my the I remember my first friend in Canada was a girl that lived about five houses down the block from us. And she came and knocked on my door, on our door, and asked me to go out and play with her. And I went with her to her house. I knew no English. And I'm still friends with her today. And in fact, she works in AHS, <laughs> ironically. But uh, we Here in Edmonton? Here in Edmonton, and we still get together. And that was how many years ago. But um, and I, I, bet I you guys, remember that. I bet even though that there was a language barrier, knowing kids you guys probably had a great time yeah we still we still played i don't know what we played probably barbies or whatever but but it, we we've we've just continued to be friends ever since it was just quite an amazing relationship and kudos to her for coming to a house with not knowing who they are and knocking on the door and inviting me so i, I mean it's uh, i never forget that what kind of kid were you um i was probably a pretty naughty kid Really? Because <laughs> no, I just say that because you were talking about how much you respected your yeah, your yeah. parents for what they did, and yeah. and I my thought was I bet that you were you know wanting to make sure that they were proud of you at of all times. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I was kind of a mischievous kid, but I mean I was I was a good kid. I wasn't high maintenance at all. But my parents are smart. You know, my parents were not the typical Asian. You know, um, uh, you know the story that was written by the Yale law professor about the tiger you know, the tiger mom. Mm -hmm. My parents were not like that at all. They were the opposite of what you would think as traditional Chinese, you know, every child should be in medicine type of parent. They never actually told me I should be a physician. Um, they actually did the opposite, which was smart. So for example, my mother, when I was growing up, would never go to sleep until I got home. Now, she wouldn't tell me that, but I knew it. So I would, I would actually impose upon myself without her ever saying anything to me to be home by about midnight, you know, and the only time that I stayed out really late was graduation. And I said to her, mom, seriously, like, I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm not going to be home at midnight and I'm going to be home like maybe at four in the morning, right? Or whatever. Was it a good party? It was a really good party. I was home at four in the morning <laughs> and my mom went to sleep, but probably it was the only night she went to sleep. But so in a way they actually, they didn't actually tell me that what I had to do, they let me figure it out. Today, Verna and her husband have children of their own. 
a daughter who owns an online fashion business, a son who's in his third year in art and design at the University of Alberta, and a four-month-old Shih Tzu who's happy with playing at home. Verna says of her human children, as long as they are happy, contribute positively, and are good people, then we are all good. When we return, I ask Verna how she got into healthcare, and specifically pediatrics. I absolutely love children, and I, I, I do think I have a knack with kids, like I just, I just I, you know, I can really relate to them well, maybe because I'm kind of a big kid myself. You have a mobile life? We have mobile answers. Download Alberta Health Services' Emergency Wait Times app at ahs.ca backslash mobile. You have a mobile life? We offer mobile protection. Download Alberta Health Services' Flu Shot Clinic Locator app at ahs.ca backslash mobile. This is David Veach, and you're listening to Passion for Health, produced by Alberta Health Services. Verna Yu knew from a very early age that she wanted to work as a pediatrician. Back then, she never imagined herself leading a province-wide health system, but now she's ready and excited to take on the challenge. So I decided I wanted to be a pediatrician at age 12. And why? So what was there was a few things that were quite critical for me at that point. So one was that I started at grade 7, and we took biology in grade 7. I went to Grandview which was the first year of academic junior high, and I loved biology. I loved the embryology. We did embryology. We did physiology. I just absolutely loved biology, so I really, really liked that. Now, I didn't correlate that to being a doctor yet. I actually then started babysitting that same year, and I absolutely love children, and I, I, I do think I have a knack with kids. Like, I just, I just I, you know, I can really relate to them well, maybe because I'm kind of a big kid myself, but... Um, I just love children. And so I started babysitting that year. And uh, although my first babysitting job was an absolute disaster, and we may or may not have time for that, but <laughs> I sort of put the two and two together and, and because I really wanted to be with children. I figured I want a career, and I don't know why I was thinking about a career at age 12, so go figure. But <laughs> I wanted to do something with kids, and I was watching the teachers. And I figured, you know what? I don't think I have the patience to be a teacher. And so I ruled out teaching. And I thought, well, what else involves kids? And then it clicked on me that, oh, I really like biology. And one of our really good friends was a family dog and would come and do house calls on me when I was sick. And I kind of put all of them together and I thought, oh my God, I want to be a pediatrician. And that was age 12 on. That's amazing. Did you, during from age 12 to now, did you ever change your mind? Or has it always been... This is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Why would I change now? Yeah, so that's probably the only sure thing in my life. Because I can honestly say that if you were to ask me 10 years ago that, Verna, you're going to be a dean of a medical school or you're going to be a CEO president of uh, um, uh, Health Services, I would have looked at you and said, are you crazy? Um, I mean, for me, it's always been, you know, I've invested 13 years to training to be a, a pediatric nephrologist. And that was my, that was what I actually thought I would be doing forever and ever. And I still do that. But there were just things that came up that I was passionate about and, and really trying to influence and in making healthcare better for people and for people in healthcare was just something I really believed I could contribute. And that's why I ended up here. 
Wow. Now, you had mentioned it. You're still going to do clinic days for pediatric nephrology, aren't mm-hmm. you? Yep. Yeah, I was on call in New Year's. And it was very interesting rounding in the hospital when people know that I'm going to be taking on this role. So, uh, you know, people are congratulating me and I joke with them and say, you sure it's not condolences? And uh, But, you know, I have to say that I, I have received overwhelming, overwhelming support from everyone. And I'm just... Just, I'm just, well, I just want to let everyone know that I'm very grateful and thankful for all the messages I've received, and, um, and I'll, I'll do my best. That's all I can do. And you're remaining professor of pediatrics at the University of Alberta as well. Yeah, I'm seconded from the university, so yeah, yeah I, I, have that, I, I have that privilege of staying as a prof, yeah. How does that feed into your new role? You will continue to be a frontline care provider. You have roots in the academic community um do those sorts of experiences ongoing experiences really um uh, inform maybe decisions or or vision toward let's say you know frontline care and partnerships and collaborations with ahs well i think that was part of the reason why chris eagle tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to put my hat in the ring for the position and I should point out at that uh, Chris Eagle was he he was uh, the CEO at that time at that time of yeah, AHS yeah. and so and it was it, it was interesting you know because I, I would say that one of my observations around my own life is that when certain doors close other doors open and I'm I've never been worried about lack of things to do to be frank and I've never done things for titles I do things for for passion and I for me that's been the it's been it just led me into the right direction and so Chris actually tapped me on the show and I think he was looking at that time my experience within the academic setting and I think there was some need to help bridge relationships with the two universities the two major universities and medical what, schools and, what was the what was the relationship like back then with what was the relationship like between AHS and the academic institutions at that point when when Chris tapped you on the shoulder? Well, I think there was need for some relationship building. Um, it's probably one of my strengths is sort of to build relationships, and and I, I think part of it stemmed from the fact that you know when AHS was formed, a lot of those connections between the local universities and the local regional health authorities were lost. And it was really hard to bridge that connection with people that you didn't know, that you had no connection with. And and so I think I was brought in to actually try to improve that, uh, provide a bit of the innovation research lens um, into the organization. Although Catherine Todd was here uh, and is here uh, leading that charge. So, I, I mean, that was one of the major reasons I'm sure that Chris asked me to apply. And, you know, during your time at AHS, when you're talking about one of your skills is relationship building, uh, a lot of the work that you've done here at AHS really focuses on that and not necessarily uh, specifically regarding AHS and academic institutions, but, um, you know, your work with the patient first strategy, your work with the people strategy, talking about, you know, our relationship with patients, clients, and their families, and the uh relationship between staff, physician, volunteers, and leadership. Right. So, I mean, all of those are intricately linked, right? Yeah. So this is what's interesting to me is that, you know, when you're trained as a pediatrician, our training is very much centered around patient-family-centered care. And so it was really, it was, I was really curious to understand that, in fact, it doesn't happen all the time. And that realization came to me years ago actually and and I'll just describe it just very quickly an experience 
you know, we had a patient who was a 17-year-old girl, and she had a long-standing history of kidney failure, was on dialysis transplant, and was admitted onto an adult service. And lovely, lovely family, lovely, um, lovely girl. And I remember walking around in the hospital, and and I and then one of the adult kidney specialists came to me and said, "Verna, your, you know, your patient's admitted, and you know she's really being a problem." And I kind of looked at him and I thought, "A problem? Like seriously? Like they've got the f- best parents ever, and she's such a delightful mm-hmm. young lady." I thought, "What on earth could be the problem?" And um, and I so I asked him. I said, "So what's the issue?" And he said, "Well." You know, the staff are saying that she's asking for her mother all the time. And that was how they perceived as being a problem. And I just, and at that point, that was quite a few years ago. That was probably about over 15 years ago. But it came to me, the realization that, in fact, patient family-centered care doesn't happen everywhere. And that patients are not always at the center of a care team, nor are they part of the care team. And I, it actually never clued into me that, in fact, Healthcare could be different in other parts um, of the system. It still surprises <laughs> me, though, because a child wanting his or her mother just seems so natural, I, right? And right, but she was sep- but she was seventeen, and mm-hmm. so still. through the adult world, and we had heard this repeatedly at that time. When you're an adult, you're an adult. You don't ask for your parents. In fact, they don't want to talk to you. Uh, they don't want they don't want to talk to your parents, and they don't take into context that these kids are have been dependent on their parents uh, and will continue to be dependent on the parents for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, was just, it was just a rude awakening for me because I then realized how tough the transition is from going from, you know, pediatrics over to adults. And we've tried to do some work with the adult colleagues to make the transitional period easier, to have some consistency in the care providers. And, you know, so we're, we're making, I think, advances in that. But I think it just points to the fact that you know, for me, it's really around making sure that everybody receives the type of care and everybody is treated the way that either I want to be treated or I want my family to be treated. You know, and I said, as recent as this past weekend when I was on call, and one of the families was asking me, you know, questioning about one of the treatments that we were recommending, I said to them, you know, I would never recommend any treatment if I didn't think that I would give it to my own child. Never, ever. And that's the lens by which I look through for everything. Because these strategies are going to continue, um, do you see that despite the transition in the CEO president role, that this is still really a period of um, not of instability, but continuity? Well, and I think that was why the board and the board chair asked me to take on the position is that they really wanted to have the continuity. Um, I don't see this period as a period of change, to be honest. We've got our health plan and our business plans in place. It's been a lot of efforts by many people, uh, all of the people that are listening, uh, to informing those plans, and we need to continue with that. Uh, just because you've got some change, uh, no matter where it is, I mean, it shouldn't detract us from what we need to do. And the health plan is the right way to go. How would you describe your leadership style? So I would call myself a, a servant leader. So in other words, I, I lead to serve. And if I can be successful in bringing others to lead, um, that would define success for me. I really believe one of my key roles is to enable others to be successful because there's no way that uh, success is based on just one individual, right? Success is a team-based, uh, team-based approach. And 
my and and you know everyone else's success would mean my success. So I really want to try to be an enabler, uh, break down any barriers, obstructions, and really provide uh, the tools, supports that uh, all of our staff need in order to do the work that they need to do. I also see myself as someone who is a major connector. Uh, I think that I, I do have some skill in connecting the right people together. I think one of the privileges of being in a position like what I've been doing is that it's allowed me to see so many different aspects of the organization. I've got a pretty good sense of where we've got some incredible activities and connecting them with other people that are looking to maybe do the same. And uh, we've got great things happening all over the place. Can you mention some of the things that you're like really excited about uh, with Alberta Health Services? Earlier, you kind of alluded to the fact of the amazing things that can be accomplished with a fully integrated health system. What are some of the things that are happening here that as a result of that fully integrated health system that maybe AHS doesn't get credit for? Well, I think, so for example, I'll use primary care. And um, it's obviously a sensitive topic these days. But, you know, we do a lot of community care. Uh, within Alberta Health Services. We're known for, I think, our hospitals, but the reality is that we have a significant amount of our budget that goes into the community, home care, uh, et cetera. And if you look at things like the family care clinics, which we've built and developed, and if you watch their evolution over the last three years, it's been quite remarkable the successes they've had at trying to integrate uh, the primary community care into the acute care setting. You know, Slave Lake, uh, East Edmonton, uh, the Calgary FCCs. I mean, these are all really good examples of where they've really found a great balance of connecting with PCNs, uh, the uh, emergency settings, to really try to align the care so that it seemed it seemed to be seamless for the patient and the family members. And overall, good for the health system. In Slave Lake, if I remember the numbers correctly, the number of non-urgent visits to the emergency department in Slave Lake has gone down by a thir- nearly a third, 30%, since the uh, family care clinic opened. A- absolutely. And you know, re- recently, just even this past weekend, uh, the Minister uh, of Health, Minister Hoffman, actually went for a tour of the FCC, and what she was able to witness was in the emergency room at Slave Lake, there was nobody waiting, and there were about 15, 16 people waiting in the family care clinic. And that's the way it should be. I mean, we should be saving the emergency visits for the ones that are really necessary, and for all other types of cares where it's not that acute, they should be seen by you know, their primary care provider uh, in, a fam- in a primary care setting. What are your thoughts on the strategic clinical networks? Well, I'm gonna be biased here, Dave, because uh, the SCNs have been reporting up to myself and Catherine Todd, mm-hmm. but I really do believe that every high-performing healthcare organization has to have a strategic arm. And the strategic arm has to be somewhat, uh, not external, but has to be having enough um, white space for them to be able to do some of the innovative and creative thinking. Because otherwise, you know, within the operational world, it's just so busy. For everyone, you never really get the downtime to be somewhat strategic and to be and to have that luxury of actually being able to be uh, creative and thinking around best evidence and practices. So SENs really is our, I would say, one of the ways, and it's multi-pronged, but one of our ways to really make sure that we have quality and sustainable healthcare in the long term. And there's no question we know that uh, it's improved outcomes, it's improved our efficiencies. Um, and, you know, we have like over 4,000 people connected one way or another to doing SEN work uh, in Alberta. So 
Uh, it's quite remarkable the type of grassroots buy-in that we've had. And we can't keep up. We've, we've got other groups that are coming to us now wanting to have SENs. And, you know, we, we're just having to, you know, look at our own resourcing and trying to find different innovative ways of bringing people in. You know, in all your answers, you've used the word connect in many ways. And it makes me think about something I heard about you, or at least a story that you like to tell about the importance of interconnectedness. And it has to do with a janitor at Nassau. Oh, right. right. Want to share that? I, I love this story. and I'd love for you to be able to share it with our listeners. Yeah, I think one of the things that we had, that I was thinking about um, when I had agreed to take on the position was how, how do we how do we stay connected to the vision around healthcare? Because there are many others, there are many in the organization who don't necessarily touch patients. And so I sort of relate a story to someone, and there's a very famous story around uh, a janitor that was cleaning a hallway um, in a building that uh, housed NASA. And someone said to him, oh, you know, how are you doing and what are you doing today? And the janitor said, uh, I'm sending a man to the moon. So, you know, wouldn't it be delightful if we were able to walk the halls of HS, no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, someone says to you, what are you doing today? I'm actually helping someone get better. Mm-hmm. Wow, that would be powerful. That would be. And, and I, I wonder how much, you know, you've seen a lot of the responses back from uh, AHS workforce in, uh, engagement surveys, uh, some of the consultations we've done with AHS staff, physicians, and volunteers. How much of that feeling do you think is out there? How much room is there for improvement to to have that everyone within AHS feels that there is actually a connection? It might not be direct patient care, but there is a connection to patient care. So I think that there is a shift. And, you know, culture change, this is about a culture change, Dave. And culture change takes years. So let's not... I think, you know, for me, let's not fool ourselves to think that we're going to be doing this in six months. Uh, so it's a culture shift and it's a journey. And But I do believe we're making inroads. When I first came here over three years ago, um, quality was not on the tip of everyone's tongue. It was a bit of an uphill road to bring quality to the forefront. Uh, patient safety issues, patient stories, uh, patient family advisors to different, you know, meetings, policy reviews, things like that. You know, and now it's different conversation. Now we can't keep up with the number of requests that comes to our patient family advisory group to ask for their input. We can't keep up um, with, um, I think, requests that are coming to our Alberta Clinician Council, which is our frontline um, uh, clinicians who, you know, are providing input for policies and programs. So I think that, I think we're flipping how we're looking at healthcare. We've always known it deep down inside. How do we actually now bring it to the surface? And how do we actually be proud of what we do? I would hope that we can all be proud when we say I work for Alberta Health Services. And I am very proud to be able to say that I work at Alberta Health Services. Why should I not be surprised that a pediatrician understands the importance of baby steps? Right. Absolutely. Verna has spent most of her life in Edmonton. She lived in Boston from 1992 to 1994 for her pediatric nephrology fellowship, but then she came back to Edmonton, a city she has called home ever since. When we return, I ask Verna what's on her to-do list. And uh, we've done a lot of work in the last year on vision. Um, And, you know, I think we've got an exciting 
rollout of a campaign that we want to do where we want everyone's input about what uh, the vision should be for Alberta Health Services. Forty percent of pregnancies in Alberta are unplanned. Whether you're ready to have a baby or not ready, make a plan. Visit readyornotalberta.ca for more. This is David Veach, and you're listening to Passion for Health, produced by Alberta Health Services. Verna Yu, the new interim AHS president and CEO, admits she's starting day one with a to-do list. I asked her, what items are at the top? So I think right now for me, it's really around uh, the relationships. And um, so very important relationships with the ministry and making sh- and government. And, you know, I, I we've been hearing a lot of context around government interference they should get out of our business and what are they doing to us and you know what we are all part of the same team whether we want to believe it or not at the end of the day i truly believe that the minister and the ministry of health and government they really do want the best for albertans in terms of health care so let's keep that lens on and see how we can do things better together because being because constantly fighting or constantly saying that they're preventing us from doing this actually leads to, I would say, a feeling of learned helplessness, and we are not helpless. There are many things that we can do in our organization, and we have been doing in our organization, that doesn't require any government input, Mm -hmm. any government uh, opinions, uh, and we do it every day. So let's get out of that learned helplessness, paralysis, and let's just Let's just focus on what we can do together and understand each other's realities. Uh, so that's the first and foremost. Can I ask a few things on that? You're a new interim president and CEO, yep. and we have a relatively new government with yep. a relatively new health minister. Yep. Um, how much is it a blank slate right now, like in, in this sort of situation where no one's been in their position for that long? Does it lead to kind of a, a blank slate where the possibilities can be written? Like, well, I would hope so. I'm, I'm going to be optimistic. I'm an optimist, obviously. I call myself a cynical optimist, so I'm not completely naive. But, yeah, I mean, I would hope so. And, um, you know, I, I don't know the minister well. I've met her twice. She, once when we did our patient first launch. I know. I was about to ask that. She was very supportive yeah. of patient first yeah. and said it was really needed. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was kind of a... Uh, you know, an initial conversation to find out where there's common ground and where there might be support and maybe a start of a rapport building. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you look, think about her vision for healthcare is about the right care, the right provider, the right time, uh, the, the, the right data. Um, so it's really about making sure that it's appropriate care. And that sounds uh, really familiar. Care. Yeah, doesn't it? Right, it does. And so, you know, I mean, I think, like I said, I think I think we have a common vision and, um, you know, let's work together. I think we can do more together than we can do apart in any context, not just with the government, uh, with the universities, with AMA, with uh, our unions. I mean, I think there's a lot more we can do working together collaboratively than divisive and apart. So what else is on your to do list? So the second thing I really, really want to do is to get our vision launched. You know, we've been visionless. We've had a vision. We've had values, but we we know we not we haven't had a vision for over a year, you know, almost two years. And uh, we've done a lot of work in the last year on vision, 
Um, and, you know, I think we've got an exciting rollout of a campaign that we want to do where we want everyone's input about what uh, the vision should be for Alberta Health Services. And it is our vision. When it you is. say everyone, do you mean within Alberta Health Services or everyone within well, Alberta province? We, yeah, you know, we, we had talked about that. And I think it's because it is Alberta Health Services. I, you know, I want to be respectful to our staff and and our volunteers and uh, our physicians. Um, so uh, we are going to keep it internal to Alberta Health Services. There are some externals, you know, like the health advisory councils, the foundations we want to get involved. But this is our vision. So this is your one opportunity to get involved. And so stay tuned. We want to get the board uh, approval end of January. And I expect to have the the calm stuff done and rolled out February 1st. I predict someone listening to this is thinking this thought. You're going to spend time on vision and values as opposed to emergency wait times, surgical wait times, continuing care issues. Get your priorities straight, right? Why is vision and values so key to a health system? Well, it's pretty hard to be rowing on the same boat when you don't know where you're rowing to. And, you know, a lot of people might say, well, vision is kind of just, you know, one of those exercises which is so high level, you never really know if it's really that important. But it is important. We've heard loud and clear through the stakeholder engagement survey that we don't have a vision. And people want to know where they're going. And so, you know, let's start with that, with that, you know, and our values. Our values are almost eight years old. And We've never revisited that, so let's do that. And, you know, are they the values we want? Um, this defines who we are as an organization. And how do we do anything beyond that? How do we align our strategies when we don't have that vision in place? So I think it's really important for us to start um, there and then move from that. Now, it's not to say that your emergency wait times and all those things won't still be issues and things that we'll have to grapple with. But man, it sure is a lot easier to put those in context when you've got your vision in place. And the work happens in parallel. Absolutely. It's not one or the other thing. Absolutely. So even as you say that uh, AHS hasn't had a vision for a couple of years and we're going to be re-examining the values, it should be pointed out that great work happens within Alberta Health Services every day. You know, we are a very resilient organization. And we've had to be resilient with all the changes that has happened in this organization at multiple levels. So I'm really proud of that fact. So you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, not having a vision doesn't mean that the good work doesn't continue to happen. Um, what I think I'm trying to say is that if we, when we land on a vision, man, can we make sure that everything we do can align towards that? You know, we've got, uh, you know, in the past, I remember when I first joined, we had like 50 tier one measures and, you know, how many different projects, nobody knew who was focusing on what. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we could actually look at what we're doing and see how it aligns with the vision going forward? And if it, and if it doesn't, then should we be doing it, right? Um, but like I said, there are so many good things happening. It doesn't stop the good work that's happening out there. So please don't take it as, you know, stop, stop until we get the vision, but that it is really important to have that in place. This is David Veach, and you've been listening to Passion for Health, produced by Alberta Health Services. You can follow us at ahs.ca backslash podcasts to add your comments. We would love to hear from you.